Welcome to the Collective Nightmares Podcast. Horror films are our collective nightmares. I'm Marshall Smith, and I have long had an interest in horror films in particular, and horror in general, anything deviant, because I find conformity is scarier than deviance. So I'm Laura Patterson, and Marshall and I both have PhDs in sociology from the University of Colorado. And I've always been drawn to horror because horror... It's really through our most horrific traits and our most horrific experiences that people have the greatest ability and the greatest need to connect with each other. And we have a guest here today who is also a sociology PhD from CU Boulder, who's Matt Brown. Hi. You want to introduce yourself? Sure. I am not a horror buff, so this is going to be fun. I specialize in sexuality, sex, and gender, so that's the part I'm going to be talking about. All right, and we... Matt is our first guest. How exciting. <laughs> we'll see if we have more guests based on how this goes. <laughs> no pressure, Matt. <laughs> exactly. No pressure. A little bit of joke there. Um, all right. And we went and saw the big gay matinee at sea here in Denver. Uh, we saw A Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge. It's a film from 1985 directed by... Jack Shoulder, and written by David Chaskin, and the IMDb summary is, a teenage boy is haunted in his dreams by deceased child murderer Freddy Krueger, who is out to possess him in order to continue his reign of terror in the real world. And let's see, our main characters were Jesse, Lisa, Grady. Freddy. Freddy. Fred. (laughs) And everybody had seen it before? I don't know. I'm unclear on whether I've seen it before or not, but we don't need to spend much of time covering that. I may have. I don't know. I saw it with you a year and a half ago. With the director? Yes. So Matt and I have seen it with Jack Shoulder in person, which is exciting. And Laura may or may not have seen the film. I don't know how I remember the director's commentary, but not the movie at all, which makes me think I'm remembering the commentary from a different film. So Did I just I... tell you about no, because I remember being there and hear, seeing the guy's face when he said, oh, I don't know, was there a homosexual you know, a message? I don't know, some people say that. And then it just moved on, and that was all the commentary was about. So maybe it was a different film. Or if it was this one, this was so much more interesting today because they actually went into that whole argument in a way that I didn't know or understand heading into this. So I thought this was incredibly interesting, and I thought their lead-in there was really... It was cool. It was I liked cool. it, yeah. This Part of the reason we're doing this is, as Laura and I have chatted with Matt about our podcast and horror films. He has raised the issue about how heteronormative and heterosexist the horror genre is, at least as much as other genres, if not worse. And this particular Nightmare on Elm Street has a at least a cult following, a cult reputation as being very allegorical for coming out wrestling with your inner sexuality demons. 
Well, beyond that, I think it's really important to say that in the commentary before the movie today, they told us that the writer wrote it intentionally to have homosexual undertones, which I didn't know. Homophobic, and yeah. Homophobic, yeah. But right. also just it was actually intended to be that. that. And there was sort of a weird mishmash of how this film happened. They wanted to release a new Nightmare on Elm Street, and they needed a script, and so they pulled some other script out of the spec pile, right? And it had these homosexual undertones that nobody realized. Even the main actor said he didn't realize apparently until he was halfway through the film or something that that was going on in this film. So it, it kind of got made without the intention of actually putting that message out there necessarily. And so that puts it in a really weird place ideologically. What it's doing, because the intentions of everybody involved weren't necessarily producing some kind of cohesive piece. Yes, I, I do think it's really interesting that the writer mentioned he thought, great, what would be scarier to the demographic, or at least at that time, the target demographic of, of white adolescent men, and it was, well, what if I have homophobic, homo, or what if I have homoerotic dreams? So he was like trying to tap into the homophobia of the mid-80s <laughs> to write a horror film, which is actually super reasonable. <laughs> what do you mean reasonable? I mean it's reasonable in the sense of like if we're try if he's trying to scare people and there's as far as I know particularly in 85 I mean this is a height of the AIDS yeah, panic AIDS, or the beginnings of it. And it, AIDS is as a homosexual disease and and the yes the panic around that and how it was linked particularly to gay men and so if you're trying to tap into some sort of cultural fear I mean, at least it makes sense. I guess. Okay. It, it was what I mean when I say reasonable. I can't wait to jump in because this ties right into in. a conversation that we were having recently about Summer of 84. Actually, in response, when we were thinking about Evan's blog post, we, we did, recently did a blog post for sociological images. And so when we were working on that, we were talking a little bit about horror, horror as a genre that approaches boundaries and deals with sort of transgressing boundaries and how that has the power to either reinforce those boundaries or potentially challenge them. And so I think horror films can do two things with the violence that they enact. In one case, how do I put this? They can you can they can enact violence in a very let's just put the violence out there. This is something hey, it'd be really fun to watch this person get hurt. So let's go do it and let's go be violent and and we can just show it in that way. I think you can also have a horror film where Instead of glorifying the violence, I don't know if glorifying is exactly the right word, but instead of basking in the experience of enacting violence, you can have a film that presents violence in such a way that I think it, it highlights maybe societal violence that's happening that people like to turn their gaze away from. So you can, you can, and I would put martyrs in that category probably, where you have a message where you're, you're basically, I would say the underlying message of the film is we're going to show a type of violence that's happening to you so that you realize as an audience member that you're culpable for doing this. That even though you want to look away or you want to say you're not engaging in this or you want to say that, you know, oh, nothing bad's really happening, you're really doing this. And so showing, you know, by, by transgressing a boundary and showing something that is part of society's fears and, and something that we wrestle with, I guess, you can really... You, you have the power in that then to either just glorify crappy behavior that people are already doing in society, or you have the power to really show something in a way that I think makes a, makes a very meaningful societal point. And this was a really interesting film because it, 
very much than if it was written to be homophobic. It just used all of that to try to stoke fear and to really present an argument and, and basically just further enact the same kind of violence. And the actor, in the little brief commentary we got before the film where they talked about the actor and his experience making the film and his experience after being in the film, he became then a target for that same kind of violence, really, that people were telling him, I hated the film, I, he, it hurt his career. He suddenly was now this poster child. His role in the film was to be beaten up in a way for being homosexual, and then society jumped on that and just said, oh, all right, let's all get on board and let's demonize homosexuality. Hey, this can be fun. Makes me think of Summer of 84, where it was we had a lot of commentary in there about women and adolescent boy sexuality, and it was really, it wasn't problematizing it. It was just using it as like, hey, this is everybody, let's be normal, let's be like heterosexual young boys and just treat women terribly and yay, isn't this fun? That you can have, the horror both has the power to do that and it also has the power to, you know, you could have had a very similar film to this film where you were looking at homosexuality and you were, where you were showing the struggle or showing the experience that people have and I think using this, the demon as this, this internal like, struggle against yourself like society's telling you this isn't okay but it's something that you want and it shouldn't be a problem but other people say it is and you know to highlight the violence that's being enacted on homosexuals in a problematic way and but this film didn't do that at all i think it entirely took the other route but i've just that's been going around in my head a lot lately the the way that this genre can both really be effective at problematizing that sort of behavior and can also just lay it on so much stronger than even other genres can because there is sort of an anything goes attitude in horror. That's what I got. <laughs> so what I hear you saying is something along the lines of if we, it's with a lot of deviant identities where the blame can be say, well, if you weren't deviant, you wouldn't experience as much harassment and abuse. And then the flip side of that is to say, well, it's not me being deviant, it's the societal reaction to it. And so it's it's really not a problem with the, the individual, it's a problem with those around them. So what I hear you saying is that by making, by queering Freddy, I mean, Freddy is the queer demon, the, head, or the homosexual, the gay demon who, monster who comes out and wrecks all this havoc. So by queering Freddy, you're, you're making queerness the monster. Absolutely. I kept coming back to that in the movie, like how would you have set this up differently so that the monster wouldn't have been homosexuality, but the monster would have been the way that society treats homosexuality. And and I kept wanting to tie it to like the Nightmare on Elm Street thing, because the Freddy's whole deal is like if you're not afraid of him, he doesn't get you, right? And I thought, oh, they could have done that. Like you could have had Freddy represent sort of the societal message, and as soon as you realize not to be afraid of it, then you know, just be who you are and be comfortable and whatever, then Freddy would go away. So Freddy would actually be the societal response. But Freddy, in this case, wasn't the societal response. I think Freddy was the queerness. I mean, I think it's a really interesting point, Laura. My initial thought is, what if, or could we could we read the movie as though the repression is what produces the monster? And so it's not the fact that he's... It's not like Freddy is queer and Freddy is a monster, therefore queer is monstrous. It's he does feel the need to, Jesse is repressing Freddy, and it's only through his repression of Freddy 
that it comes out in monstrous ways? I kept trying and I kept failing, but I kept okay. trying to read it that way because I think that would have been a, a cool way that it could have been done. Yeah, I don't think that's what's happening because at the end of the movie, Jesse is clearly straight. And so I like the idea that we didn't necessarily queer Freddy as an individual. He just stood for repression. And in this, the subtext is all around uh, homophobia. And then the director or whoever turned it into this homoerotic experience rather than a homophobic experience, except for Freddy as the monster. And so it was really fascinating to me that queerness is monstrosity. I imagine Jesse is straight. And so it's just this, like the speaker, the lecturer said, this interruption of heterosexuality. So we know that it's just going to interrupt it. We're still safe. It's not going to take over. There's not a disruption of heterosexuality. It's just this momentary pause. And that's what became, what was scary, what was dangerous, what was bloody, what was AIDS. That's Wait, wait, but so you think he was straight at the end? I was just Because I didn't think so. I thought on the bus when, I mean, it was, it was funny. I thought that was why it was a laugh line when she said to him, what she said, like, oh, let's, not, let's just not talk about it. It's all over. His, that she, she was trying to claim him as hers through the whole movie for no apparent reason because it didn't really seem like he necessarily even liked her, but she was trying really hard to get him to be her boyfriend. And then, like, I felt like he, he comes in and he kisses her and everything's great and like heterosexuality, yay, this must be how it is. And then the monster starts creeping back up in him. But he was still struggling with the same thing. Okay. Or no, was that not your read? I guess I think heterosexuality saves the day that ideal of sexuality, the family is represented over and over and over again and the... Lisa's family, Jesse's family, the families of the past victims are brought up. And so I feel as if heterosexuality gets reestablished at the end. And homosexuality is not established. It's still that must remain in the closet. And so I guess that's what I was trying to say. Maybe not that he's necessarily heterosexual, but that poses this whole question about do we... Can't he be heterosexual or bisexual? We automatically jump to he's either or, but it's just perhaps that monster, that same sex desire, which isn't necessarily homosexuality, becomes uh, the issue, is that same sex desire. But I still saw him at the end because he was in this heterosexual relationship, at the very least presenting as heterosexual, regardless of how he might have self-identified. And I found that really, I don't know, do horror movies always end with normal is reestablished? Yeah, it really, it really depends on the film. <laughs> That's the inside um, joke. So uh, as a genre, it doesn't do that? I think the argument is particularly that this first wave of slashers post- and 70s, early 80s reflected the political moment of, reflected the cultural anxieties that also contributed to Reagan, which was we had counterculture, we had rights movements, and now, and we had, you know, 
Carter, who's questionable and not appropriately masculine and all this. And so we're going to reestablish normalcy. And so there was a lot of reestablishing of normalcy in that moment in horror. Since then, I don't think that's the case. Except it, it is in some cases, because well, I think that's going to pull us back to summer of 84, this idea that there is like a... I don't know, a trope or something out there for that. There is a, a pattern of horror film that does exactly that. I think establishes these very conservative views of normalcy. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I, I guess what Aww. I should say is I don't think that's as strong of a trope, if you want to call it that, or a, or it's it's just not as prominent as it was, particularly at that time. So when did leaving, when did the genre move away from, or and I may be misunderstanding, this idea of reestablishing normal at the end of the movie. Was that a time period in horror? Or is that something that is just another subgenre of horror and all of these other subgenres are playing out simultaneously? Or was the reestablishing normalcy this Reagan byproduct? Is it a time specific or do we continue to see this as just another subgenre rather than this kind of historical artifact? I think it's time-specific, particularly for slashers. And I think that's also true because there was such a dip in slasher film popularity. Essentially, when uh, Reagan move was pushed out, and then we didn't really revitalize slasher films till Scream. And when was Scream? Thinking of presidents. Yeah. So 96 was at the end of Bush... The son, correct? Right. Or towards the end of his second term? Reagan had to be 80 to 84, 84 to 88. Bush won 88 to 92. And, and then, then the first Clinton Bush, was Bush the dad. Yeah, and then Clinton was 92 to 2000. Yes, because George W. Bush was president a year before 9 11. Right. right. So, so the slasher genre came back at the end of Clinton's. Second term, or the middle of Clinton. Exactly in the middle. So I don't know if that, yeah, I don't know exactly how that plays out. Because Clinton, there's a lot of culture war battles going on in Clinton's pregnancy, in Clinton's (laughs) presidency. Right. That's a great question. I, I have to think about that, but I think it is really, as you framed this out, Laura, really important to look at whether or not we're reestablishing and hyper, not hyper, um, by violating normal and then reestablishing normal, you're further emphasizing it or further underlining it under, yeah, underlining it rather than, and in doing so you're, you are not using horror in a transgressive fashion. And then there are ways that you can use horror as transgressive. And to tie this back to the ending of uh, the ending of uh, Freddy's Revenge, Nightmare on Elm Street 2 here is I, I'm I'm actually not exactly sure, but if we're following the line of argument of the repression and because of the repression, it's it's why Freddy emerges as a monstrous actor rather than an actual gay person, right? Or, or rather than actually representative of gayness, it's the repression rather than the gayness. It would make sense that he reemerges in the final scene of the film because, and I think you were saying this too, that Jesse is back to repressing 
I think it, I just want to raise the issue that the families were futile. So I think there's an argument to be made, too, that rather than, oh, families will resolve this and that's reaffirming heterosexuality, it's the nuclear family is useless. <laughs> they don't solve anything for anyone in the film. But whatever. Go ahead. Wait, I, if Freddie was repression, then when, I don't remember her name now, but the love interest, when she says... Lisa. Lisa. When Lisa says, I love you, that would not start to kill Freddie. That would heighten Freddie because that would be feeding into his repression. What, it's a, what if it's a platonic love and she's saying, I accept you for who you are? Oh, God, I don't think that's, that's it. That's <laughs> not trying what to win that him was over. about. I mean, that comes right after them making out in the dressing room or the pool house. And there was a scene, they're making out, and then they stop because Jesse's, we have to stop, it's starting again, his sexual excitement. And uh, they end up on the floor kind of on their knees. And the image that came to mind for me was Ted Haggard and his wife on their knees praying for Jesus to take his same-sex desire away and his Matthews, assumably. Um, so it was this really interesting moment because Ted Haggard doesn't identify as gay, at least that I know of, and he's still married to his wife. So... And that's all I felt in that scene. When she says, I love you, and he starts to almost come back to life, all I felt was just Jesse the comes pray back the game to life. That was... Is that where you were, oh, too? Oh, absolutely. That's yeah, so funny. Absolutely. <laughs> I'm not necessarily saying that I think that. I'm just, I'm just carrying out the argument, which, Laura, anyone you should appreciate, uh, it's best to oh, confront the argument head on rather than... Yeah. <laughs> You know, poke those weak spots or poke those spots. <laughs> well, and the thing that I found interesting is Marshall wanted to originally, he and I, to watch this and to talk about it. And I said, no, I really want to watch it as part of Big Gay Matinee. As I want to watch it with a theater of mostly queer people and... Uh, who are coming to experience it as this gay cult film or this camp film. And it wasn't treated as horror this time around. This was not a horror movie for this audience. This was a comedy. And so I found that really fascinating how these messages of the monstrosity of repression or the repression becomes the monster and how this time it was just comedic. It really was, sometimes it was the punchline. And I found that interesting to watch it with this queer audience, with this 24 years of queer organizing and queer politics and being at this moment with Trump and his uh attacking the trans non-binary community, attacking gays and lesbians, Putin and his attacks on gays and lesbians, the increasing shift to the right globally, um, is that this could have been another horror movie, or to watch it as a horror movie, that it just, um, that's not how it was viewed today. I mean, yeah, I agree with you. They treated it as much more of a comedy. What I hear the argument being, which I, I think I agree with, is that it really is a stigmatization of 
same gender sexual experience, uh, feelings and experiences or inclinations, if not homosexuality outright. And so if, if the film's overarching ideology is that sort of stigmatization and a queer audience is watching it and enjoying it, are they, are they enjoying it as a comedy because of the absurdity of that argument? I was going down that exact same road watching it and actually feeling a little bit that it was a little bit sad in a way that that a group that's been oppressed would have to take it not have to but would would take up this film as an example of something to I almost want to say like highlight a little bit of the homosexual experience because yes there's so there's homoerotic imagery and that's that can be funny or it can be nice to just even have in a film because as opposed to something that's completely not looked at in society you can say oh look it's out there look they're at least showing it but they're showing it in the context of something that was actually very offensive really i mean the message was offensive i think what it was meant to do was offensive and so on the one hand you can think it's nice to be able to to take that media and use it for your own purposes and just laugh at it and say Reclaim right it, exactly yeah. exactly and that's that's powerful and at the same time it makes me feel like there's a lack of media then that's actually promoting these messages in a positive way because it's like why would you need to pull on this old example of something that was really offensive rather than just having a, a plethora of stuff that you could really draw on that would affirm that message in a in a much more positive manner oh i think that's available i definitely think that tv shows movies all of that stuff is available now i mean the most recent was that I'm remembering is Love, Simon, which is this kind of positive, white, high school, middle class to affluent boys coming out. So I think it's definitely there. Is there this nostalgia for it? What do you think? But you were, my understanding is what Laura was saying was within the horror genre specifically. Oh, within horror, there's no positive queerness. Or at least not not a lot that I can think of, or certainly not from that time period. So it could also be like the time capsule argument that they were making, that it's nice to pull out a time capsule where, hey, even though they were saying it was terrible, at least we're acknowledging it exists, which is, I don't know. I don't. I, I just had a little bit of trouble with that. I, I had a little bit of trouble with seeing it as a positive thing that we'd want to go see over and over or promote or when, when the underlying message was meant to be offensive to the group of people that were sitting there watching it. That just, I... Well, maybe it wasn't meant to be offensive, but it is. <laughs> I don't know if he really meant for it to be offensive. It sounded like he was really, the the writer anyway, was thinking this is a great way to sell money. I don't think he was writing it like a right-wing ideologue. Like, I'm going to do this to offend. That's not a, yeah. whatever, it's a difference. I don't know how, you can decide for yourself whether you think that's any better or not, but... Well, I also think that there's a long history of the queer community, and I'll say gay men and lesbians as well. There's this kind of erasure of lesbian camp, but definitely the use of camp to create a safe distance, I think, to view hostile images or repressive images and to turn them, turn them over disrupt them so that they become a way to reflect the positive for the community in a way that's 
they're saying, you know, in this movie that this is monstrous, this is horrible, this is dangerous, this is the spread of immorality, this is the spread of AIDS and the targeted repression, homosexuality, homosexuals, is this, that absurdity gets turned on its head. And so the ability to maybe not control the narrative, but to control the impact of the narrative, I think is what camp does. And so I guess I kind of disagree with what you just said. It's really interesting to hear that. I actually wish that I had heard that as part of the commentary beforehand, because I think that would have changed how I saw some of that. I like that. I like what you're saying there. Because I see it as the interpretation by the audience and how it owns something rather than what the message was. I like that. The screenwriter obviously wanted to make money, and he wanted a homophobic movie. And what so often happens, I think, with homophobia is that we read it as repressed homoeroticism. So is there a reading? Is there somebody who's written about what you just talked about with camp as a I think Douglas Crimp has. Crimp? Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's C-R-I-M-P. I'm pretty sure he has. I haven't read it, though, so he could be making a completely different argument. (laughs) Okay. I I just, I I mean, that's really interesting. I haven't read that. That's just me thinking. So it calls to mind two things. One, Laura Mulvey's classic reclamation of women spectatorship. And she argues back, this was mid-70s, where she she presented this argument that cinema, mainstream cinema anyway, dominantly relies on the het men's the male gaze, uh-huh. and it's it's imagined for the viewers to adopt a male gaze, and so she talked about women having to reclaim spectatorship, and then Bell Hooks came in and talked. We talked about this before, where she talked about going to as a as a poor black woman in the south girl in the south going to movies was a real treat but all the movies were whatever hollywood movies were that were racist and and classist and erasure of queer people and so she had the oppositional gaze is what she coined as a way for her to be able to enjoy the experience even though what she was seeing was offensive to her and and attacking her and so that's really interesting to me because i haven't heard a comparable or i'm just not familiar with this approach of another group that's been excluded and marginalized or at least some of them being able to take this other means or this like you said reclaim it and use reclaim the impact of the content of the media in a way that is more empowering or at least enjoyable yeah or at least minimizes the damage uh-huh. that it does i like that a lot and i feel like that's very different from what we talked about when we talked about the oppositional oppositional gaze because in that case it was someone who had no choices which in a sense was maybe a little bit the argument i was coming from before you said what you said where you know this person had no power to dictate any of the media that they were going to be consuming and so it's like how do you look at something that's made by people who want to oppress you and and try to find some joy in that but what you're saying is really different because now especially if there are there are options for viewing things that wouldn't have come from this more i don't know offensive or repressive 
um, ideology, but saying that you're gonna you're gonna opt to look at something that comes from an ideology that's really against that's intending to repress people in in your category, right? And that you would choose to do that on purpose just to reclaim that message. That's it's sort of like a third category of what we're talking about there. I like that a lot. Yeah. So what I hear you say is, you're, what am I hearing you say? I'm hearing you say the argument is that is more of a agentic action towards I'm gonna I'm gonna take this one option and I'm gonna repurpose it rather than I'm just now that I have options I'm just gonna ignore the stuff I don't like or that is really problematic I'm just not gonna sip from that cup. And in this case, I'm going to sip it and sort of learn to appreciate that flavor. Is that a terrible metaphor? <laughs> I'm not appreciating the flavor exactly, but... I mean, there is something very empowering about being able to look at a, an art form where people are essentially saying, you're wrong, you're evil, you are like the devil in this you know, world that we're living in, mm-hmm. and just sit there and laugh at it. Oh, yeah, That's, okay. That helped me understand that. So oh, cool. Not everybody so, has a PhD who <laughs> listens to us, Dr. Brown. But so, <laughs> another thing that I think was really interesting in watching this film was hearing about how it was produced and the fact that, yeah, that the writer wrote an entire, a different movie. And then this script was used and Freddie was kind of just interjected into the script because they wanted a Nightmare on Elm Street Right, because he wasn't in the spec script. Yes, yeah. And the actor who, the main actor in this movie, didn't realize that there was anything homosexual going on until like halfway through the movie, and he just happens to be homosexual, and which it doesn't sound like he was selected for the role on purpose because of that. I think that sounded like it was a coincidence. They said Um, he came out during the movie. Yeah, yeah. So it's interesting to look at how... It's almost like, like the intention behind the crafting of this as a repressive piece of art. You don't really know who's culpable or to what extent, because everybody it's like it, it happened almost in some weird organic kind of way that wasn't nobody set out to make a film to say homosexuality is wrong, which in a way almost highlights the pervasiveness of that message in society because the fact that someone would write a script and, as you said, maybe not intentionally say, I'm going to write a script about homophobia, but like, what's scary? Ooh, gay guys, that's scary. I'm going to just put that in there. You know, that's not what it's supposed to be about, but that scares him, and so he puts it in because uh. it's a horror movie. And th- this whole thing would come about and would... I-, I think horror, it highlights a way that horror in general can pull on societal fears, even unintentionally or kind of below the radar a little bit. People that write horror because you're dealing with boundaries and because you're dealing with what's scary don't necessarily have to walk in with a message of here's what I'm going to lay out about society. I think that it that genre therefore allows us a lot of really interesting windows into how people feel and, and what the societal mood is at the moment because even if it's not people's intention, it, it kind of comes through anyway. The thought that came to mind for me was isn't it Foucault's conditions of possibility? It's like hegemony, right? You, you shape things in such a way that you create conditions of possibility and then the likelihood of those things happening is enough that something like this could happen. I feel like it's maybe something, some product of that and some product of, I don't want to just use this all the time, but like white privilege of, we don't need to think about the rest of this. What's scary? Oh, well, that scared us. Oh, well, who's in charge of Hollywood in, in the mid-80s? And, and who's going to fund it? And who's? And then we saw the director, or I saw the director, who said, I'd never even occurred to me that there was a gay subtext. He just summarily 
didn't didn't cross my mind. Which is so fascinating because yeah. there's the camera lingers on Jesse, the camera lingers on Grady, his best friend, antagonist. Um, they have this weird relationship as if they were straight boys who loved each other. Um, and so it's really fascinating that he says that. And then there's the one scene where Lisa, the girlfriend, is helping Jesse unpack. And as she's putting sweaters in the closet, there's the box that very clearly says probe. Um, there's another scene where Lisa and her girlfriend are walking with Jesse in the, at, at school. And the girlfriend is carrying her health textbook, which is very... Uh, clearly displayed. And the sign on his door says "No chicks allowed." Yeah, uh, yeah. and so <laughs> like the E from checks was painted over with an I. Yeah, no out of no, no out, out of state, state chicks, chicks allowed. But right. yeah, but Laura and I have been back and forth through this. I can't tell you how many directors or writers we've gone to see. And, and you I've, and I as well. Yeah, and you and I, and I'll raise my hand and be like, "So, did you intend for all this?" And I'll be like. Oh no, that's not really what I was thinking about. It's, which just baffles me and drives me nuts. But it would not make him an exception to no, not at all. Yeah, I mean, it's like yes, that always happens. But also, I feel like there are a little bit more reaches when you're trying to make those arguments. Generally, when the director says no, this is by far. What do you mean I, by that? I mean, as in Marshall will pull together this really great theory on what the film was about, and and it's cool, and it maybe it's there, but I don't feel like it's beating you over the head as obviously as this one was with. I mean, even just from the right at the start, he gets out of bed and there's his like his little Sweaty package in his underwear, heaving. like right there, and he moves them. And then they cut straight to the, the eggs in the frying pan, which was like so testicular. Like it, it was just constant. And the probe, I mean, pro- like it, there was it wasn't subtlety to this argument. Like it was just really, really, really obvious and constant. And I mean, the picture that the this so someone gave a little talk before the film when we saw it today, and they put up a picture of the sex scene between. I don't know. I can't remember their names either of them. But Lisa anyway, and Jesse. Lisa and Jesse. Thank in you. In the pool house. Yeah, and the the penis. I mean, I mean, I mean, it was it was so phallic. There's no way. But I kept thinking, was the director? I mean, the director was presumably like the director of photography, like the person deciding where the camera would go and what the shots would look like. Director of photography is a different person. So somebody was filming this certainly to be sexual, maybe not homosexual. I mean, although it largely was, but maybe it was just sexual, but that had to be intentional. I'd love to hear you make this argument because this is exactly how, which how you're speaking right now is often exactly how I feel where it's like, this is all painfully obvious people. Like, why don't you just see? And then my dad's like, that's all just put shit. And the probe. I mean, the probe was like, that was... It's... The little pop gun thing. Yeah, him know? masturbating oh, on his bed yes. when his girlfriend walks in. He's not masturbating, but he has this little wooden toy in his hands that he's pointing out from his crotch. And he's masturbating, and then he comes just as his mom walks in the bedroom with his girlfriend. And so it's like he shoots his load... With his mom watching, which has all kinds of repercussions. <laughs> they actually go to a S&M gay bar, and the the whole the commentary right at the beginning is about the well, I don't know why they had to pull that in the coach liking pretty boys or something, and then everybody doing and then they pull the pull the guy's pants down at the first scene they're like wrestling and then they pull his pants down and there's a, I mean oh yeah well and I think that also is used to heighten 
Jesse's vulnerability and the gayness uh, that's there. The other thing that I thought was also just all the BDSM imagery, and I wanted to ask you too, because this is a queer horror, but we haven't talked about the BDM aspect of this movie or BDSM, bondage, discipline, sadism, masochism, dominance, submission. Is that right? No. Bondage, discipline, dominance, submission, sadomasochism, BDSM. The imagery, like that shower scene was straight up single tail with the whipping. And so I just found that really fascinating. Oh, and tied up with the jump ropes. Well, yeah, I mean, he's tied up with the jump ropes and just this repeated specter spirit single tailing him. And I found that really fascinating. Is that something you see in horror movies, that BDSM imagery? So I have to ask, what's single tailing? Single tail, I think most people think of a single tail as a bull whip. Oh, okay. And so where you take that whip to hit somebody with it. So this question about BDSM in horror movies, what do you think? Surely there is a significant component of horror that relies on the sex negativity of U.S. culture. Quit calling me Shirley. (laughs) (laughs) I love that joke. It never gets old. Um, Yeah, I just generally, yes. I'm I'm trying to think of specifically... There's definitely got to be some... Some of that with uh, particularly Dracula, where it's blood play and dark, gothic costuming, uh-huh. leather. and Well, I guess the person who talk, spoke talked about sort of queer vampires in The Lost Boys and right and uh, this Twilight. AIDS, AIDS I, moment. Yeah. Which I never watched Twilight, the whole, any of them. So. Maybe we should. Yeah. I was going to say, when Marshall and I first started talking about horror movies, which was, God, feels like a hundred years ago at this point, probably seven or eight years, we were talking about the intersection between sexuality and violence in horror films and horror and pornography. And I think there's, there's some sort of visceral aspect that ties a lot of that together. And so I think you end up with a lot of the same imagery and the same kind of drives being pulled on. And I don't know how to give a better answer than to say that BDSM and horror are intermixed, they're interlinked in a way that I haven't even really fully parsed out, even having tried to think about this for probably seven or eight years. Um, And I don't know how much it's just visceral. I don't know how much it's, that that pushing boundaries feels sexual in a way, whether it is or isn't. And and so when you're pushing boundaries, even outside of a sexual context, it maybe makes you more likely to pull in sexual stuff or sexual things are gonna creep in there. And and then particularly dealing with violence, it's like there's there's often, and then there's depiction of dominance and submission, certainly in the sense that somebody is being put down and somebody is being held up as right in on just like a very basic level in a horror film. And so I think you see a whole spectrum of that kind of dynamic playing out. Mm-hmm. The BDSM. Do you think so? Was that? Do you think within the context of this film, it was uh, stigmatizing BDSM as it was? And conflating that with homoeroticism? Well, I also think about that moment in the mid-80s and Catherine McKinnon 
Andrea Dworkin and their push around porn is inherent violence against women, and they used a lot of BDSM imagery to make their arguments. So they took some very violent-looking pornographic images. And so I just saw that again in this historical moment that that really fit in to our kind of public discussion, at least within feminist circles, around sexuality and violence. So that's how I contextualized that scene, is that it had to be dangerous, it had to be murderous. You know, thinking of Gail Rubin's domino theory, is that if you're going to get spanked, uh, what's to hold you back? If you like spanking, what's to hold you back from all out killing somebody? And I, that's how I saw that scene and that moment of Only Words by Catherine McKinnon. And so I definitely think it was stigmatizing because that's where we were mainstream America at that time. I was trying to think if there's anything else in the film that... Well, I was just going to say during the... They told us that that was a BDSM gay club that we went to in that one scene in the film, right? Well, yes, because they talk about the coach being into BDSM gay clubs. Okay, so... Because there was a very hedonistic <clears throat> vibe. I, that whole sequence was shot. Everybody looked drugged and out of it. Every single person had a drink in their hand, and nobody looked happy. Nobody, I mean, not nobody. Everyone looked like they had troubles by being there, and that they were just excessively consuming stimuli. You know, uh-huh. whether it was alcohol or whatever they were doing, it looked like it was very problematized. In the 15 seconds that we panned through there, I noticed that that. Nobody looked like they were having what could be perceived as an okay experience. Or an okay life. Right. I loved that scene because I looked at all of the people and I kept thinking to myself, who are these people standing in for in our society? I, I looked at the bartender who had that leather cuff up his left arm with the large spikes and... I thought his makeup was heavy. And so I really found this kind of even queering queer. So here was this like very masculine dressed man, but with uh, makeup. And I don't know. We'll have to go back and look and see if that's the case. But I had that moment when I was looking at his eyeliner. His lips seemed a little glossy. And so I just thought, oh, wow, here we are pushing that boundary beyond just the same-sex attraction, just the gayness. And here we are moving into this, what may be perceived as even more dangerous. And part of that more dangerous space is this gender inversion, gender blurring. And this, if we mess with gender too, this is where this is. Uh, because... You know, you kind of saw everybody there. Yeah, and those, the haircuts, the hairstyles seemed to masculinize the women. And so there was this whole moment of where are we and who are we with? And that's what I thought. So with you, as we were in that bar space, I just kept thinking, okay, where are we and who are we with? Like, what is the, what have they set up? 
I love subtextually. What you're <laughs> I love what you just said about who are these people meant to stand in for in society. I think that is such an interesting question because it exactly felt like what you're saying. You, you put such great words to that, that it's, it's a slippery slope and this is where the slope starts to lead. And, and what was that meant to problematize even further? I mean, it had the feel of hell, I thought. It's like we're in hell. And the bartender was kind of Lucifer. And they give you a weird glass with beer, apparently. Right. That honestly gave me a little bit of a Cuso vibe, just because I was like, oh, that's things just not being right in a way that you can't quite pinpoint down. Uber Santa Cuso. And that led to his first kill. I love your, I love your domino theory. Uh-huh. And I took the beer as totally a uh, phallic orgasm. Like oh, him did having you? to pour his own beer. Because like, <laughs> 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 then he leaves with the coach, right? And the coach is like, hey. <laughs> but again, if we go back to the bedroom scene, I guess that means he blew his load before he... Oh, the masturbation scene in front of his mom? Yeah. I don't know, but I... What? Uh, just there's something about how he, him having to pour his own beer into a cup that was way too small. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh huh. I also want to say that it's interesting and I think unfortunate in the Nightmare on Elm Street in the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise that this, as we're seeing it, or as the argument seems to be amuse, uh, emerging, that it was really a conservative and Sex negative and homophobic and AIDS transphobic, transphobic because part of what is so prominent in Wes Craven's work and Nightmare on Elm Street in particular is is set out as a different sort of slasher film because it has Nightmare on Elm Street the first one in particular it has a a woman lead who is agentic and is powerful and the, the representatives of patriarchal structures, particularly police and literal patriarch father, are either absent or ineffective in being able to help her. There's a way to read Nightmare on Street where it's really her fighting off the constraints of patriarchy and patriarchal institutions. And then Wes Craven carries that through and, and, and I mean, make that same argument with Scream, where it is, again, can be read as, as very feminist, if not that it's a panacea, right? I can't speak to there being any queer visibility in those films, but, but to have a much more overt feminist argument run through really the rest of the franchise it's, I think, even more disappointing to see this as an example that is counter. Terribly counter. Yeah. I mean, Lisa's only role in this film was to try to acquire him, and he wasn't even, he didn't, he didn't do anything to feed into her life that we saw that would make him worth acquiring. I, f- I felt like her entire motivation was wanting this man to be hers. And... You didn't see any reason for that. You didn't see anything that she would get out of having him in her life other than a whole big pile of problems because all he did was cause a lot of trouble. But it didn't matter 
you know, and when she's sitting there talking to her friend about what should I do, oh, I'm at this party, but oh, I just want to go to him. And her friend's, oh, just go to him. And I thought that seems so metaphorically like you're at a place where you could engage with people, you could have meaningful connections with people. This is your life, it's your house, it's your party that you're throwing, and you're going to leave to go chase down this guy who's shown basically no interest in you and also really doesn't. He, we've, we saw no evidence of them connecting on any real in any real way. We have no idea what she even wants in life. What does she like? Who is she? There was no there, no mention of anything about her personality or why he would even like feed into her life or make her life better. And yet she's just obsessed with getting him. And at the end, she's so happy sitting on the bus because she has him for a second there. That that was a terrible role to put her in. Just terrible. And her slutty friend. Did nothing but make like slutty comments, right? Which is fine, but okay. so how did you read her as slutty? Isn't she who is like, are you getting any yet? And because I read her that way too, but well, I didn't read her as slutty. I read now her as I can't remember why I read her as being more sexually adventurous. She said something Lisa. specifically about like, are you getting any from from him yet? When they're in the baseball, that early baseball scene. Yeah, that early in the film. You're right. Okie doke. And yeah. then there was some other moments, which it was sort of, it's funny that you say that, because yeah, her her entire value was... Being pretty. Was was not even, not even being that. pretty, was get a man. Absolutely. And, is, and there's research out there that shows high school girls, their value, their status is based on relationship and boyfriends and high school boys. It's about their accomplishments. Presumably because they see movies like this. <laughs> I'm, I'm not blaming movies. Uh, just for the record, I'm saying that it doesn't help that this is right. But yeah, she, but her friend was interesting because her friend didn't seem to have any interest in any of the men other than like she wanted to get for laid fun. or encourage her friend to get laid and it's like oh that's good go ahead get your laid on and she, I love her I love the scene at the pool where she's like I'm busy now <laughs> this guy who's coming up and she's just like you need to go away because she's not going to put up with anything unless she's getting what she wants out of it mm-hmm. you make a good point so was she problematized at all because she should be part of that argument that the film was reacting against I really what to do with her well at the I end she's she the one who bursts open with a monster did i miss that is she wait what doesn't freddie like burst from inside her and the school bus did that happen if so that totally pulls it right together She's sitting behind them on the school bus. Right. She's in the middle, yeah. and then all of a sudden, yeah. Freddie bursts out of her torso. Yeah, you're right. I'm sorry. Yes. Okay. So, right. So, surely her sexually liberated <laughs> self can't survive. Right. So, she gets taken out, too. Right. By repressed sexuality, or, or in her case, perhaps an overt sexuality. Yeah. Right. Right. For her, the problem is she is overly Woman and the appropriate feminine sexuality. And for Jesse, it's about being a man and the appropriate masculine sexuality. So both, which is interesting because it just goes to show that both sexualities have to be contained, have to be controlled, have to be repressed. Right. That's interesting. So one thing then also that is, is interesting is that the family dynamic the family was very much presented as 
correct and right. Even from the first scenes, right, where he's in bed and he wakes up from this terrible dream and he goes downstairs to the like idyllic breakfast scene. So the family was with the testicular eggs. <laughs> right, with the testicular <laughs> eggs. <laughs> the family was idyllic, and the the daughter certainly was a little angel sitting there. But the parents didn't seem happy. The dad, I felt like I think he was comic. I, like I think there was he was meant to be sort of comically that dad, you know, like he he was a, just laying in his barca lounger, you know, watching TV. He's up being angry on the whatever on the ladder and the the wife is trying to kind of tone him down. So in a way the film then just didn't do as good a job as it could have done if it were trying to make this message that this is the savior family. Either it was in, it shouldn't have been intentionally comical about it, or it wasn't intentionally comical, and it was really just that blind to the fact that that maybe that's how most people live, but that in itself doesn't look terribly appealing or or happy or satisfying. Yes, what I hear you saying is um, it would have been more in line with the rest of what we've sorted out with what, what, how we think the film is presenting these things if the family was actually like happy and generous and loving because then all of these things would have happened despite their efforts. And in this case, it's like, well, your family's kind of crappy. No wonder you turned out good. Well, they would have been the refuge. (laughs) (laughs) They would have been the refuge. Maybe it's somebody, I'm sorry. I just maybe talked myself out of my own argument. Right. Well, they, we often talk about the counterpoint. Like, if, if you're going to tell us in a film that something's wrong, then are you going to present us what's right? right? Right. That came up in was it the Night Shifter? Right. And we didn't really have a counter counter argument. And in this case, I think the family would be the counter argument. I mean, so, and certainly the fact that the daughter was so angelic, and and the fact that they shot that first scene like that made me think, oh, the family is like the the nuclear family, or at a bare minimum, heterosexual family, was the oasis where you can get away from Freddie and you can get away from all this trouble if you'll just be there. But they actually, just surprisingly, I thought, didn't they didn't seem to be like a shining example of how I'd want to live. You know, I mean dad just looks worn out and grumpy and yeah, sleeping in a chair, watching TV sort of, and mom is unhappy and they both kind of bicker with each other about stuff that doesn't seem to matter. And that surprised me a little bit. I think that's all three of the families in the film so Lisa's family, who was the third family? Grady. We see his parents when he's locked in the room with Jesse, and Jesse That's turns right. into Freddie. Mm-hmm. And then Lisa's parents also are locked in the room. All three of the families are useless to help yeah. these kids, whatever their help is that they need, whether it's saving from... Disease, uh, it, right. sex. <laughs> Jesse's sexuality, or... Jesse's violence or Jesse himself struggling with his which is interesting because I mean Reagan was the Christian values Republican president right he was the confluence of that political movement where the evangelical right got in bed got in bed with the uh, Republican Party, the so-called fiscal conservatives. And the NRA. <laughs> so yeah, so which for a conservative-minded person, that would be very scary, right? Oh, God, I might not, I can't even, all my heterosexuality and love is, or not love, I wouldn't really say anybody was loving, but mm-hmm. all my heterosexuality can't save my kid from 
the evils of the world. Gay AIDS. <laughs> gay AIDS. Which is so unlike hemophiliac AIDS. <laughs> I would say that as a joke, but it's true. <laughs> I don't remember us talking when we saw it before about how ultimately we found the film very conservative. Did I just miss that? Or had we not looked at that? Or did we just... I thought we had, because... And maybe we didn't, and I'm just thinking now, but... Yeah, I just keep thinking of all the blood and how that we would have definitely talked about this and that those AIDS years and that early AIDS panic. Was there's a... What? The... Right after he allegedly kills Grady, there's what, like a good 90 seconds where he's just blood all over himself and this kind of pure wildness, uncontained violence and death. And I just feel like we would have talked about that on the train ride back into the city. Yeah. I just didn't remember talking about Mm -hmm. that. It's interesting and unfortunate and... I hate to say this. It's really unfortunate for the actor who couldn't have realized, and I don't really know his politics, but as a as someone who's who feels very aggrieved by the film and his experience and took a lot of the backlash, it's really unfortunate for him. But other than him, maybe it is sort of okay that this is a disliked film amongst many in the horror genre why because if it's so conservative and so negative unless you're going to watch it as a camp experience Mm -hmm. which many people may not i mean i was thinking of that earlier when we talked about people coming up to him at conferences and saying or conventions and saying you you don't belong here you were you're terrible or whatever by Uh, him you mean the actor yeah yeah when he would go to the horror conferences or maybe even nightmare conferences, whatever. Long before I ever, before I ever really started looking at any of this, I disliked the second one because it wasn't a Wes Craven film and it, it doesn't fit the rest of the franchise. franchise. It it is an outlier. And certainly it very much was something that existed because of a capitalist push to just make a really quick sequel and have a bunch of money thrown into it. And anytime you take a script that wasn't even written to be that film and try to jam some other bad guy into it and just make it run and get it done really quickly, you know, it's going to suffer in content. Yeah. So there's this, at least for me for a long time, it was like, I just don't watch it and really include it because I just don't think it's a good movie. I didn't think about all this ideology, which I also don't necessarily like um but yeah that makes it even more unfortunate for the actor right and there's the new documentary coming out about him scream queen my nightmare on elm street so i'm really looking forward to it absolutely i think that seems really interesting yeah i think this film is most interesting as like they said in the intro as a cultural snapshot of so many different confluence of so many different things. I mean, just the the strange capitalist push to get out a sequel without anybody even understanding what it's about. So how that can represent the ideology of a society in a way that 
often might not be the case because it would be a more deliberate effort to make a certain message. This was almost a just like a grab bag of messages from the time period that it was produced and and all of the really awful repressive commentary. I, oh, go ahead. No, I, I'm going to change the subject, so go ahead and finish. No, I just I think it's really, it's just really interesting as a snapshot of a, like this emerged. And I think to think about how it came about and what it says about society and what it did to the lives of the people involved in it. And and I almost I wonder, you know, we've had whole, this whole conversation talking about the writer as though he intended some sort of some bad homophobic message, which we got a little bit of information in the lead into the film. They read us a quote from him basically saying that he intended it to be homophobic, not homoerotic. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, but but how much was that? really intentional or was he basically writing a horror movie and that was just a little thing he kind of threw in because oh what nobody cares this is everybody feels this way sort of mentality and you know just how this emerged as a as a piece of art at this time is Uh interesting even though yeah its message is bad and it's apparently was problematic in a lot of ways including just directly on the lives of the people involved in the film were you gonna raise another issue Yes, I wanted to talk about, because we did, this movie is kind of very well known for its subtext. What about overt queer characters in horror movies and perhaps protagonists? Minimal. Minimal? I just was listening to some other podcast that said Vulture, which I guess is a magazine, maybe it's an online magazine, has a list of 50 queer horror films. Where the queer character isn't the monster i have no idea oh okay i haven't looked at the list i just heard that and remember thinking i definitely can come up with 50 because there's a whole genre of gay vamp gay male vampire movies that are so bad i can't watch them as much as i want to watch queer cinema so it keeps getting made these vampire series i just can't watch but if this and the presentation beforehand kind of makes me want to go back and now watch them more critically instead of the dialogue's bad, the acting is bad. Um, but yeah, there's a whole genre of gay vampire movies, gay boy vampire movies. And then, I mean, that brings up the question, obviously, lesbians and horror movies. More lesbians as monsters or lesbians as protagonists lesbians as protagonists and lesbians as protagonists and i am not comfortable saying for sure whether i would argue they're presented as negative or positive monsters like they are monsters i'm thinking of in particular it's gonna be trouble it's been a while since i've watched it there's a series called ginger snaps which is which equates becoming a werewolf with becoming an adult woman with menstruation, and it's two of them, and I think they are. I hope I'm not screwing those up. I think they're, I think they're lesbians, not sisters. I can't remember, and I don't think they're. And they are monsters, but I think they're sympathetic. I think you, they're not presented as. They're monsters in the sense they're creatures. They're monsters not in the sense that they are negative beings or negative problems for everybody else. Okay. The only example I can think of is martyrs. And I'm trying to think, like, can you think of other examples? And also, 
in Martyrs, I, it fits because there is this particular... Well, okay, maybe maybe this isn't true so much in Martyrs, but I was going to say that within the whole genre of like rape revenge movies, and you, you have this empowering women kind of against masculine sexuality or masculinity, and in that case, then having a, a lesbian protagonist might make sense. And I was thinking of Martyrs in that vein a little bit, but it, although it's not really, but it is an empowered woman. It's like by taking strength, somehow you can eschew needing a man that that ideologically ties together sometimes, but I can't think of any other examples. Do they, do they kiss? Yes. Yeah. But, but it's unclear who's... So, no, I don't remember their names either, but the, the woman who... Anna? Not the main... Well, the woman who becomes, I guess, the main character, but not at the beginning. She's the friend, sort of the yeah, sidekick right. to the... She she seems very interested. Right. So I get the sense that she yeah, was gay. Or yeah, at least yeah. there was something going on between the two of them. Attraction beyond, yeah. The only other thing I wanted to bring up is what you were talking about with nostalgia. Somebody said nostalgia, and I thought it was really an interesting counterpoint because we just watched this film, Summer 84, which is new, and we found really relied on this nostalgia for this era and these movies from this era. And we talked about, I think in particular, how problematic it was that it's relying on this nostalgia, but it's not... It's relying on the nostalgia and it's recreating the toxicity that was also happening during those times. And if I remember right, we were saying you could create a nostalgic kind of throwback film. Slasher. Or just... Or kind of a... It's like Goonies. I feel like Summer of 84. Yeah. Suspensey thriller adventure movie. Goonies or Stand By Me or... Teenage Boys Coming of Age in the Summer. Uh-huh. And bonding over some sort of dark experience or whatever. But you could do that without relying on also the... Uh, Reinforcing problematic versions of normalcy. Right. And, right. What does the, the guy talk about women as women as bonding over women? Girl watching. The article by Quinn, girl watching. Oh, okay. And it's... Oh, we can be friends because we both joke about having sex with whoever. Okay. I haven't read that article. I remember finding it even more egregious to call back to that time and recreate that part of it, too, rather than going back to see a movie like this and, and thinking, okay, well, this was made that long ago. We can see it and we can understand that, well, in this case, maybe it was relying on a uh, on a... A really problematic intention, but it wasn't. A lot of it may have been the blindness of privilege, and saying for me anyway, like however many years later, 30 years later, relying on the blindness of privilege <laughs> gets to me wears much thinner. You've had 30 years to like figure out how to do this a little bit differently, right? Uh-huh. I, first of all. I want to agree with you and say yes. And at the same time, I think our reading of Summer of 84 counteracts that argument, though, a tiny little bit. Uh, I mean, I want to agree with you. And I think actually what you said was a really good note to end on, so I probably shouldn't even be throwing this in. But the fact that we started off talking about Summer of 84 and for 20 minutes, we're like, it was a really good movie. We really liked it. We really enjoyed it. And then all of a sudden we're like, oh, wait a second. That was like super problematic, wasn't it? Oh, man. Like we didn't even realize at first that somebody who's not used to coming from that mindset might be like, let's redo something like Goonies. And it might not even dawn on them that the fact that you have the teenage boys snooping on the neighbor girl and 
then she's undressing and they're like watching her and she catches them and she finds it flattering and she shows up at the one boy's house the next day and is like, oh, like you like me? I mean, it's just, it's really <laughs> bad. And that was her only role in the movie was uh-huh. for them to talk about her. And then once one of them kind of becomes friends with her because they're, I think he has a, now a romantic interest in her. Suddenly he gets upset when his friends say things that are sexual about her because she's hit. It's really. Is this a horror movie? Uh, in a way. Yeah. But that's just sort of the. What's going on in the background of the whole movie is these boys bonding over women as commodity. It was one particular woman who is then only her only character is to be their commodity. And she's flattered by her use as their commodity. And her not being able to own that, her putting herself on display, but it's she's being objectified. She's being uh, she's not. a Yeah. So because I think of a couple of movies where. The woman takes that, but she owns it and makes it hers. And this is clearly not the agentic woman. No. If she, we know nothing about her. So if she was agentic, we have no idea because we didn't get to meet her we in the film. We, we only don't saw know her, her other than yeah, through there. looking through literally a male gaze. <laughs> but I think the fact that it took us 20 minutes to realize that that was incredibly problematic, or at least to, to realize the extent to which that was a problematic film... Um, because we started off, I know, on that podcast saying, I think we could watch it over and over. Like that was, it was really, it was really good. It was just very well done, which it was, but it might mean that people would still be blind to the same thing, even though it's been so many years later. Yeah. And we, we talked about that being even more insidious. And for me, that raises the question of watching this film. If the general sort of idea is, Hey, this is a queer horror film and you want to come watch it and you don't have a lecture beforehand and you don't have a PhD in sociology uh-huh. or whatever else. I feel like you could walk away and for that 20 minutes, which is probably longer than many people think about the subtext, the content or the ideological message of a film and think, oh, yeah, it was there was some homoeroticism. It was it is kind of a queer horror movie. How fun and not not feel this really conservative, problematic subtext like that seems well, that brings us right back to what I was, the argument I was making that I, but I really liked Matt's counter argument to that, that I, in a way I felt kind of sad watching it thinking that this is the experience of what people have to draw on. Although I think you're right that if it's used in the right way, that can be a really powerful experience. So maybe the question just becomes, how is it you, like how, how is it being? I think that's what I'm asking. And I guess we're back to the fact that I'm pretty cynical about how many people are going to sit there and read a movie yeah or understand it as a camp as we're gonna laugh at the absurdity of demonizing sexuality rather than but that's also 24 years later or 23 years later i think about do people who watch horror movies come in with this critical oppositional gaze um or are they just there to enjoy the massacre, the gore, and the violence? Um, or are they there to, like, the kind of visceral response of a movie? Um, cause, you know, I don't watch these cause they're too gory for me. Uh, and Marshall's the one who drags me. Like, you have to watch this one at least. Um, and so I'll go with him. But I think about, them really being adolescent, heterosexual, white boys even, to put a fine point to it. Movies. 
and I don't think of definitely me, my adolescent me, I didn't, I didn't have any kind of critical awareness. Yeah, and that's what I'm saying is I just I worry that my impression is that most the overwhelming majority of people would be either going for the visceral reaction or the or the thrill of going to have a little bit of fear and scare and and enjoy some guts, the display of the gore and but I will say is that queer adolescent me him and his underwear would have made a big impression on me. And like kind of looking at the boys, his shirt was open so many times. We see him in, and not that kind of classic boxers that men wear in movies, but these tidy whities. Um, and then when he's in Grady's bedroom, Grady's in a pair of camouflage shorts. So you don't get to see anything. And also with Jesse's jeans. I mean, we see the contours of his dick throughout the movie. Um, and so that's definitely something me as an at me as an adolescent boy would definitely have been, oh my God, this is like a real turn on. But I don't know if straight adolescent boys do that with men. Cause that scene where he's, in the chair in Grady's bedroom where he just kind of lays back and the camera just kind of starts at what his knees or something. And we just spend what three, four seconds of just looking at him. I just kind of chuckled to myself. This is a gay male gaze. I think there were laughs in the audience. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there definitely was because he's, he's laid back spread out in this very kind of feminine pose. So yeah, there definitely were laughs in that. So I think we've got three really interesting arguments here. We've got either there is a lot of homoerotic imagery, intentional or not, but I don't see how it cannot be intentional. And at least, <laughs> as you're saying, at least that's something to be out there for people to see. And to the extent that people might have like latched onto that a little bit or found it to be sex positive movie in a way, just because it was it was even being shown, that's something. Then there's these really awful repressive messages where you could say the ideology is actually no no it was completely homophobic and it was meant to shame people and and tell you you know it could could be insidious and get into your mind and say that what you're doing or how you feel is wrong and that's that's horrible and we've got this sort of third note of well we can take something that's really offensive and repressive and and turn it on its head and say let's now reclaim this for ourselves and view it as we can laugh at the fact that somebody's telling us that we're wrong and, and maybe all three of those interpretations are out there and, and valid and happening. You know, I don't know which is more right. Well, and we're encouraging people to do the reading, which is why we're doing the podcast, right? Mm -hmm. All right. And with that, since we have also like a leaf flower or something, <laughs> Matt, Dr. Matt Brown, thank you for joining us for this lovely experience. Well, thanks for inviting me. And you can find us on Instagram at Collective Nightmares, on Twitter at Collect Night, N-I-G-H-T. We have a Patreon page where you can get exclusive additional content. If you subscribe or rate or review our podcast and show us that you've done so, we'll send you swag. We'll send you stuff. Horror films are our collective nightmares. 
cold down here. How long is this podcast? Is it a half hour? It just kind of is. Oh, okay. <laughs> I don't really know. I think it's usually like an hour and 15 minutes. <laughs> Oops, sorry. All right, Laura, you ready to do introduction? I guess. Oh, you mean of me, right? Yeah. Yeah, I didn't prep anything, actually. I just barely got myself here, but I'll just wait because I told you last time I would, and I stand by my word even though I'm not ready. I appreciate that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I do, actually. Are we doing like we were doing before, where I start with the PhD thing? Sure. I'm gonna, I'll just do the same one again. It's actually very relevant to this discussion. Oh. But yours was good. You came up with something good now. I won't get into a long philosophical discussion on how to introduce oneself. Oh, thank goodness. <laughs> I'll just do it again. But I don't like it. I need a new one. That's what I'll do on the What's that actually. water thing? So do you, do you need to do a test or can you already tell? Not chipper compared to your shirt. <laughs> just, just my, shirt my shirt isn't chipper either. The contrast isn't. Uh, I'm trying to make things happen here. I've got other shit to do. And it's almost—it's yeah. almost the rainbow too. All right. Oh, you've written notes. Uh, do we know when the movie was released? Was it '82? Why? I mean, if, we need to—I need to sound like I know what's happening. We know what's happening. All you have to do is guess. Right, because we're so good. And have some, have some uh, faith in us. You don't know when it was released. You're proving. Can you count over here? Um, all right, welcome. Can I just say that also, it's total aside. You should cut this when you're editing. Uh, Notes itself. Um, 
that totally gives me a good argument to have the BDSM scene in Bone stay in. In what? <laughs> Finally agreed to take it out. It's not that it's not a good thing. Do we? <laughs> I just want to say that. It's something to think about. I'm just going to throw one little thing in here so you hear it when you're editing this, which is that you can't put every argument you want to make about every issue in the world in one movie. So just know that there are plenty Ooh, of... Part of editing is going to be that there are part of really, really, really good things and really good scenes that just don't belong there. And I think that may be the case with that scene. Yeah. Uh, and everyone else agrees with me in the entire world. Else does. <laughs> uh, what did you think about 